We are live. Oh. I am joined by Scott Reiniger. How are you, sir? I'm uh, perfectly fine. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm I'm just like, I'm, I can't tell you how nervous I've been about this interview. Um, really? I, oh, I've, I've been terrified. I've been terrified. This is a big deal for me. Just, just like, I love Dawn of the Dead. Well, um, I'm just, you know, like, I'm just, I'm a human being. That's all, you know, <laughs> loves what he does. But it's, it's, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on. I really do. Um, we've got some fun. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you. No, um, no, it's my, it's my pleasure. Got some uh, really fun questions for you. Um, the, sure. the goal, I want to just give you a chance to kind of tell your story, just start from the beginning. Um, where, where were you born? I was born in New York City, and I grew up just outside of White Plains, New York, which is about an hour, an hour and a half of north of Manhattan. Uh, okay. That's where I grew up, yeah. What was it like growing up there? Uh, it was, uh, just visually, it's really pretty, it's hilly, a lot of trees, uh, countryside, um, it was, uh, a small community, it was called Bedford, um, it's still there, hasn't changed much over the years, um, a lot of colonial homes, you know, that style, the architecture, um, and, uh, we spent a lot of time outside as a kid. You know, people don't do that much anymore. That's but true. Mo- most of our life, as soon as we get outside and get out of the house, we're outside out of the house. You know, as, as a kid, always. Were you a big uh, bike rider, baseball, stuff like that? Oh, bike rider, yeah. Not so much baseball. Um, yeah, big bike rider. Um, and then later on in life, I got into Alfa Romeos. We can talk about that. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, do all kinds of things. Walk through the woods, go camping in the woods, and um, stay overnight in the woods, cook in the woods, you know, and have a lot of fun. And my my family was fairly uh, chaotic, so it was always really nice to get out of the house. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents? What what did they do? Um, well, at that time, my father was in PR for Bendix International, which is an aviation company. And my mom was a volunteer at mental hospitals. Um, I think she always wanted to do that as a career or as a nurse. Um, so yeah, that, that's what they did. You know, later on, my dad retired. Uh, and then my parents moved, a lot, much later on, they moved to a, a place in Connecticut. Uh, and uh, it was a, Interesting childhood, I'll put it that way. It was never predictable about what was going to happen from one day to the next. Uh, but, you know, you learn to roll with that. That's true. That's yeah. very true. Do, were either of your parents artistic people? Um, not really, no. Uh, well, my father could paint. That was something that he liked doing. Was he a painter, per se? Uh, no, that he did it a lot? No. But he did like it, and when he did it, he really enjoyed it. And I think it was good for his mind to take him away from what was going on in the world. You know? uh, but other than that, no. So you're you kind of grew up in the the mid late fifties, early sixties, high school around the late sixties. Yeah, I was in high school from sixty three to sixty seven. Okay. 
Yeah, I went to a school called Wooster, which was a private uh, school, which I loved. I was a, I learned more at that school than I ever learned in college. Really? Yeah, just because of the way the school was uh, constructed and its philosophy. Uh, it was a, you know, it was a great education, high academics and all that, but it was based on community and based on self-help where all the students had jobs at the school when they didn't have classes. We took care of the grounds, we worked in the kitchen, in the dining room, we cleaned the dormitories, we did everything. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, and it was a good experience because uh, the school was very big on community and working in a community, how you have to collaborate. And there were fights, there definitely were, and then the way the school would address this, is that they would have a meeting with the people involved and then be a teacher mentor uh, for conflict resolution. They were like way ahead of their time. Uh, and when you publicly in front of a, a bunch of students and other faculty people, you had to uh, explain what happened and why and what are you going to do about it. Uh, it was very valuable. It's been very valuable in my life. I can, I can honestly say I'm very good at collaborating with other people. Were, like there, were, there, were there a lot of trade classes available when you were in high school? Uh, there was trade. Uh, there was a shop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was that. Um, I wasn't too involved in that, but um, they had shop. And then, of, of course, sports. You know, I was a, a wrestler. I played football. I'm not very tall. I'm only like 5'7", right? Uh, but I was very quick and very fast. Uh, so in football, I used to, uh, a weird, I don't know if you want to know this, you want to know what happened when I played football? Absolutely. Oh, well, I could, would run really fast, uh, but I was only about 145, maybe at most 150 at the very most. Um, when I was wrestling, I was 133 pounds. But anyway, uh, in football, I could run really fast, and the coach came up to me one day. He said, I have an idea. I said, well, what's that? Because normally I was in the backfield. Uh, he said, what if you play pulling guard? I went, what? To be a guard in my size? Because the guys on the other side of the, uh, on the other team, like, were huge. And we're talking 200, 250 pounds, and they would eat you alive, right? He said, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to create these plays. And certain plays, you're going to pull out to the right and go around the end because they won't expect it, and you'll go out for a pass. And I did that, and I was uh, pretty good at it. I liked it. I liked the challenge of faking out these really big guys on the other side of the line. And I could also move around them really quickly. They tried to you know, tackle me, and I would just, or block me, and I would just zip around them and go downfield. You know, so <laughs> it was funny. And then I was in wrestling, uh, and I enjoyed that. I was a pretty good wrestler, and I won um, silver in the state of Connecticut. You know, there's all oh, these, wow. all these inter all these uh, intertwined you know schools that are part of this whole organization, sports organization, and I, uh, um, I I did very well. I liked it. I was I, kind of kind of aggressive, I think. Yeah. Wrestling was, uh, I wrestled in eighth grade. Oh, really? And oh. I, I, I was, so I've always been kind of a bigger guy. 
most of my life. Uh-huh. And uh, in eighth grade, I was as big as most high school seniors. Really? And unfortunately, uh-huh. I wrestled a lot of high school seniors and guys that were in like upper high school. And I, I remember my first match, this guy, I was, I was terrified, terrified. And the, the, the ref blew the whistle and he just bum rushed me. And, and I was on the ground and pinned and I got, apparently I got flipped by somebody at one point. I didn't last very long in wrestling. <laughs> I just was too, I was too nervous, but that's, that's uh, so, so kudos to you for, for hanging in that. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I was, I was, I was pretty good at it. Um, but, um, you know, that was then I never pursued it after high school. Um, or in college or anything like that at all. Um, but my high school experience overall was very uh, valuable uh, in many, many ways. I made really good friends. Uh, a couple I still have to this day. I, I'm not the kind of person, you know, as you get older, like, oh, high school was the best days of your life. I don't really feel that way. You know, like, oh, I wish I could go back to high school. I have no desire to go back to high school. Um, and I just kind of live in the present that I always have, you know. It seems like it was a really interesting time to go to high school, though. That I mean, it was it was there was such an interesting culture in America, you know. I mean, it, it was it was tumultuous, but Very. at the same time, it, it it was it was also sort of a revolutionary time in music and rock and roll and it was cinema. It was huge changes. It was very uh, exciting, very energizing. Uh, at the school, uh, at the high school, the teachers were really interesting because the teaching, all your classes were absolutely required and you had to get good grades and all that business. But they tell you from the get-go, your education here, your classes are only part of your education. Mm-hmm. Your education is also what you do outside of the class. And they create these activities for us, um, and which was really interesting. And they'd have guest speakers come in, which you thought was going to be one thing, but actually would turn into a learning experience. I'll give you an example. They had uh, Gene Krupa come, who was one of the famous, most famous jazz drummers at the time. Okay, And I'm a musician as well, so I would love to go to that. And he would talk about, you know, music and all of that. But then what it really led into was drugs and how dangerous they, because he was a former drug addict. He was a heroin addict, actually. And the whole tone of the thing changed. It made you really think about it. They would do these kind of events that were very, <laughs> very, very they were very sly about it because everything was about teaching, teaching, teaching mm-hmm. in whatever form uh, or another that's what I like. That's what I loved about the school. Now, where where did you go to college? I went to well, <laughs> I went to Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. I went there because they have a really good music school. It's a small college, but they have a very good music school. Um, but I didn't get into the music school because my theory and my sight rating was uh, was fairly weak. Uh, however, I could read music to sing, and I could play the piano by ear. I could re- create music by ear. I love doing that. And I decided I wanted to go to a music school. I wasn't being too realistic. I didn't get in. So I went to Rollins anyway, 
And then um, one day, uh, this person I knew from the theater department came by and she said, hey, you play the piano, don't you? I said, yeah. She said, well, we have this role in this uh, show we're going to do and we need somebody to play the piano. You want to audition? And it was just very casual. I said, oh, yeah, sure. Okay. So I auditioned and I got the role and we did the show. I got hooked. I changed my major from behavioral science, which was my major at that time, which I loved, by the way, um, and uh, to, uh, to theater. And that was the beginning of my training. I, I trained like crazy after that professionally, too. So, so, college, so college is where the acting bug bit you. Yeah, that's where it happened. I took all that passion I had for music and I turned it into the, the acting and the directing. I had a double degree acting slash directing. Um, and, uh, but during that time, uh, right before that, I made that decision, I decided to go and audition for Berkeley School of Music in Boston. Have you ever heard of that? I, uh, I've heard of Berkeley, but I hadn't heard of the School of Music there. Yeah, it's not the Berkeley, California. It's in Boston, and it's spelled differently. Uh, oh, okay. It's one of the top music schools in the entire world in that they focus on many, many, many different musical disciplines. Classic, rock, jazz, alternative, on and on and on and on. And I was always fascinated by the school. So I went up there. I didn't tell my parents because I knew that they would like get all upset. And I auditioned for them for about three, three and a half hours. And I got accepted, and they said that we're going to accept you uh, on one condition, that you spend the entire summer here before the next fall uh, and study theory, theory and sight reading. I was, like, so jazzed. Well, then I told my parents that started nuclear war with them. They're going to be <laughs> a musician because they associate being a musician, particularly a jazz musician, you know, with drugs and all of that whole thing. It was, was really was like war, you know, and, and most emotionally wore me down. And um, then this thing happened with the theater thing. And then I, so I just took all that energy and I put it into the theater. Wow. Yeah. So this is kind of a, kind of a, a an offshoot question, but the, the passion you have for, for piano playing, have you ever been able to, to actually write a score for any films or uh, any plays or anything? No, I've so I've done it for plays sometimes, um, and you know I just write intuitively in terms of what I think the story point is the moment of the 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 feel the ambiance or how it supports the uh, emotional action in the in the story. Uh, but I haven't made a habit out of it. But I thought about doing it more, but. Do you, I mean, with, with sites like SoundCloud and things like that out there, now's a fantastic time to do that and to get your work featured. Do, do you have any of your work available online for people to hear? Music-wise? Mm -hmm. No. Uh -huh. No? Okay. No. It's, it's definitely something to look into. I, I'd love to hear it. And and if you ever if you ever decide to do that, if you want to email me or, or text me or something, I'll be more than happy to, to, to plug the link for you. Oh, um, really? The, yeah, like absolutely. That would be super cool. Well, That'd be I, fantastic. Have to, I have to think about that. I'm so involved in other things, but, you know, I mean, I still love playing the piano. I'm the kind of guy, I can be in New York City and I walk by a piano store, I can't resist it. I have to go inside. 
He's going there. <laughs> I, 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 I have to try the instruments out because every piano has a different feeling, has a very different nature, different sound, different action, uh, different feeling under your fingers. And they're all different. When, when did you learn to play piano? When did I learn how to play it? Mm-hmm. When I was young, I'd play stuff on my, on, a, my, my, on a piano. My dear parents are going, what are you playing? So I'm just making it up. Well, what is it? Uh, I'm just making it up. You know, I could play certain things. I could play Christmas carols and things like that. And, um, I could even play Malaguena. Uh, but more often I would uh, play uh, things that were just coming out of my head. Don't ask so, me so, so from a young age, even before formal training, you, you could just hear things and just start playing them? Yeah, I can. It's hard to explain. Uh, I could play by ear. And I would have uh, an idea. It was all very intuitive. And I would just start to play it on the piano. Because I was very familiar with the keyboard and everything, how that all happens. And I was very versatile with that. And just music would just start to, I can't explain, it would just kind of show up. (laughs) That's really incredible. That's really, really incredible. Yeah, I I don't know where that comes from. But it's just, I, you know, that was my first love to do that and it took me a while to get over it and I never really got over it I uh, just channeled it and then when I became a director uh, in the stage and then TV music was always a factor in my mind always because I would understand the story the, the relationships the nature of the particular character and whatnot, but I would think of them in terms of rhythm and flow. I always found plays were really like, if they're well written, that is. Uh, it's like rhythm and flow. There's like music to the play itself, if that makes any sense. I'm not trying to be esoteric. It's just. No, 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 not at all. That makes total sense. And, and actually, as you were saying that, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, <clears throat> I wonder what it would be like to kind of sit inside of your mind when you write a screenplay or write a play. I, I imagine, do you, do you hear the music with, with the scenes as you're writing? Uh, I do sometimes. Yep. Mm-hmm. I feel the, uh, boy, uh, I feel the, I mean, developing a story is a big task. You know, it's not just intuitive, it's there's structure. And, mm-hmm. and then, but I feel the characters and then after a while I can hear them. I would dream about them, literally, wow. and dream about them. I can hear them talking and how they speak and how they communicate. And, uh, and sometimes that's a result of a hell of a lot of research. You know, when you start to absorb the sort of thought process, the more you research the people. I'm working on a project now, which is a historical piece. I can't really tell you about the story because it's too uh, uh, not controversial. It's just uh, too. Uh, I can't really say anything about it yet. Awesome. It's, it's very unusual. I, oh, that's all I can tell you. I look forward to hearing about it at some point uh, when when it comes time. Like now, let, let's let's fast forward a little bit. So so you're in, you're in college, you're you're active, you've gotten bit by the acting bug. Um, mm-hmm. How did you land your first role in in cinema? Uh, in cinema, well, most of my stuff early on was in the theater. Uh, like a lot of it, I was constantly auditioning for the theater. And the first television or film thing I did. Uh, 
Well, the first TV thing I did was a commercial for Stouffer's Food, and I played this whacked-out conductor with my hair straight up in the air, uh, inducting music, which was a soundtrack to the commercial. That was my actual first legitimate professional job that I got paid for. Uh, apart from the theater, I was already working in the theater. And, um, that was the first job. But the first actual role that I got was, I think, geez. Uh, I, I think it was not as the world turns, it was a soap opera. It was the other one. Day, um, wait a minute, what is it? I can't remember. She just, I'm getting old. Um, but the funny thing about it was, you know, because I was a training junkie and I was really well trained. I trained on and off to almost 1977, 70, yeah. Um, not full time, but I had a lot of training, a lot of classical training, conservatory training. I was just, uh, just uh, addicted to it, you know, uh, but that wasn't my point. What did you ask me just before? Oh, uh, just how you landed your first cinema role. But but I, I, I'm interested I, in, in in researching and reading about you. Theater is definitely a big a big part of your life. Yeah. Um, how much different is the theater world compared to the, the the cinema world? Well, the world of the people are not so different. You know, it's all about how do you tell a story. I mean, it sounds trite. It's just that the media is drastically different. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're telling a story, and oftentimes you're telling it out of sequence. In the theater, the opposite is true. You know, even when you rehearsal, you rehearse things in sequence. In film, uh, you know, more often than not, it's always out of sequence. So in the way things are scheduled, I'm sure you know why that is. It's for budget. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it's a different way of thinking. I mean, acting is acting. It's just in film, you have to make an adjustment for the size of the shot. Right. So if you are doing a shot and if, like, let's say you're doing a master or you do a wide shot or like a wide two shot or whatever. Uh, and your character is a very kinetic character and very, very expressive and whatnot and the frame can absorb that and or the frame is wide enough to include that so you can do that same sequence again but then do it in close-up okay so what you do is you take your movement still do it but you take it 50 percent down because what the audience sees if you were that huge or not huge or full in the close-up it's almost distracting to watch because there's too much movement. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the eyes. It's all about subtext, what the characters are really thinking. I mean, good actors, you know. Right. And what's, what's behind the words, that's what it's all about. You know, so. That's true. So, so it, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, acting acting is acting, but it's just, it's, I, I imagine it's just such a different world to operate in. I mean, like, do do, do stage actors, do, do they have agents for, for parts and things? I mean, oh, like, sure. Sure, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um. You know, the big difference is that um, – 
when you're doing a show, you're doing a play, and you meet the cast and the director, and you're in a big rehearsal room, wherever it is, in New York or wherever, and you start to dig into the play. You start to dig into what is the depth, what is really going on here, what's really behind the words, what's, what are the objectives, where's the conflict, um, where's the tension in the script. And it's all about digging into the script, into the script, into the script, and then developing your character as you go along. And that's done usually in a se- sequential fashion and mm-hmm. order. It's not true at all in film. It's the opposite. So you have to think the truth is the truth, no matter what the medium is. Okay. And the audience knows that they can tell you, you know, if something doesn't feel true to them or not. Um, but the thing is, is that because it's out of sequence, you have to think differently as an actor in terms of how you plan out what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And then every day you're shooting, you need to think about where you are in the story where you are in the progression of the story, what is the impact on you at that particular moment? So it's like a puzzle that you put together and then gets edited, you know? And so the movie's really made in the editing bay. I know you've heard that a million times, but it's true. Um, do, you, do you think it's more challenging as an actor to do film compared to, to theater? Uh, not necessarily, no. Uh, I think in film, it's, it's getting used to the environment. It's getting used to the amount of people and equipment and stuff that is like very close to you and mm-hmm. how you actually have to just tune it out and give all of yourself to what's happening in the moment, whether, whether it's another character or if the, even if the character is quiet and standing at a beach thinking about something. Um, but there are always people around and they can be quite close to you. So it takes a different kind of discipline. You've just got to block it out, right? And you have to give yourself to everything that's happening in that particular moment and just let, let the director and cinematographer capture it. You know, I mean, that's what they do is they capture moments or scenes from these particular characters, and then they put them all together later on. You know? So it's a different way of thinking. Uh, it's not as gratifying uh, until you see it edited, then it's more gratifying. In the theater, as you know, it's live. So you have mm-hmm. instant reaction. You have you can feel the audience. You can feel if they're moved or if they're laughing, right? Or they applaud. You don't get that in film at all. I know it's obvious, but you don't. In that way, it's complete, very, very different. But the theater, I, mean, I, I never thought about that. It's exciting. I mean, it's I, hadn't, very, I hadn't considered that. You what? I I hadn't considered that. Just just the the the, the gratification difference in between doing live theater ver- versus you know making a film, how much different it is. It's really fascinating. It is different. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you don't. Uh, I mean, I'm saying things that people have said throughout the ages, but it's just the live experience. You can't replace it. There's just something about it. <laughs> like. You know, you could be doing a million films at what time, but then it's like the Brits. They're very commonly always go back to the stage. You know, they do a lot of films and all that, but then they're always doing something on the stage. Always. They don't just give it up. America is very different. America is like, who are you if you're not a star? We live in this weird culture. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't exist in Europe. It it doesn't the thinking doesn't exist. Yes, certain people act, you know, like they're self indulgent or neurotic or they're narcissistic. Excuse me. But the culture is different. The attitude towards training is different. There's so much emphasis here on being a star rather than a really strong, specific, gifted actor. Now, that does exist. There are a lot of great places you can train, but I'm talking about the general public. Mm-hmm. It's not appreciated in, in, in that way. It's just not. But it's not their fault. But like, so here, for example, people find out you're an actor, say, what are you, what are you doing? Like now, right? Um, you tell them what you're doing. Maybe you're not doing anything, or maybe you change the subject. Uh, and how many movies have you been in? What, what's your biggest part? Um, on and on and on and on. And then if they figure out that you are not the big star, their interest it starts to weaken. It's a cultural thing in America. It's so weird to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's not the same in Europe. It really is not. Um, they have a greater appreciation for the art than, than we Oh, do my God, that. yeah. I'm not saying that Americans are stupid. A lot of Americans can be pretty damn brilliant. Um, and, you know, and particularly filmmakers. Um, it's just... You can't know what it is or have an opinion about it unless you've done it. It's, that's probably the simplest answer. Yep. Everybody's that's that's such a good point. <laughs> you know, it's like probably anything in life... Uh, Everybody can be an armchair director. I teach acting students at the American Conservative American Academy of Dramatic Arts in Los Angeles, which is on both coasts. It's a very uh, long tradition, kick butt conservatory, right, for people who want to become professional actors. That environment is very, very different than going into like you have one class and you get a class and that's it. And then because of that, you're now an actor. Mm-hmm. Everybody can be an actor per se. People come up to LA just to be, to be an actor. Well, okay. That's fine. You know, if you are a brilliant, intuitive person, there are some people like that. They are very, very rare, right? Um, you're not going to really go anywhere unless you're serious about it. Mm-hmm. If you get lucky, but that, those stories are the tiny, tiny percentage. But the way the media portrays them, you think, oh, like every day everybody's being discovered. No, that's not true at all. It's just not. Because yeah. yeah, yeah. the media come, tends to twist things. Well, and, and, and film is looking so different today as well. I mean, like the, the independent film community is, is growing and growing and growing. And, and you made such a, a, a great point when, when, when you said that you can't really understand it until you've done it, it it's so easy to, to sit back and criticize things, mm-hmm. uh, especially movies. But, you know, yeah. I, I recently became a filmmaker and, and I'm, and I'm working on my first film and Good for you. It, it's been eye opening how difficult it is to do. And there's so much you have to think about the, the oh budget, the shots, the actors, their schedules, 
you know, th there's, there's so much involved in even doing a short film and it really opened my eyes and it gave me a greater appreciation for film. I mean, it, like it's, it, it, it's not having done it. You can sit back and say, Oh, this is terrible. This is, you know, but you don't know the story behind that production. You don't know how much money they had. You, no. you don't know who these people are. It's, it's just, it's, it's been, it's been eye opening. So I can really appreciate that point that you just made. And I'm really glad you made it. Oh, okay. Good. Um, you don't know when you're watching it objectively, and it's fine for people to have opinions, but they they don't know. Mm -hmm. um, you can't know. You can't you can't know what the problems were during the shoot. What problems were there? You know, there are always problems. Some are big, but some are small. You know, um, and then how do you solve those problems? As a director, you're always solving things. Yep. Always solving. Date week week of so I was supposed to begin filming on my movie last week, and or I'm sorry uh, last weekend, and that week I literally lost two actors. Oh, did you? Oh man, what did I, you do? I lost. Uh, I had one. Um, so I, I had several people who were wanting to be a part of the production, and so one of them, um, I reached out to him and asked him if he wanted to to play a part, and he was he said absolutely. And the other one, it was interesting. She actually reached out to me over Facebook mm. and um, asked if we were still doing auditions. And and I said, you know, it's funny you asked that. Actually, we, we just had a part open up. So she did an audition and she brought this really amazing, like mater like this, like savage maternal mm. element to this, this character. And, and it's actually really adding to our script and we're having to do some rewrites mm -hmm. Um but it, it really is actually for the better and some amazing things have been happening, but, but it's just in, in going on this journey, like I've had multiple filmmakers tell me, have a plan B, have a plan C, things are going to go wrong. And they're like, okay, you know, yeah. And, and, and they, they do, <laughs> they, they inevitably do, yeah. go wrong. They absolutely uh, go wrong. I love it when an actor brings something so much and their own individual angle to the character, to the role that is not necessarily obvious, but really works well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, you know, wh what's on the page? The page is the story. The page is the blueprint, right? For the actor, the actor then fills in everything else. And those actors who can do that and do it well, they're great to watch. Mm -hmm. I love watching them, you know, because, I mean, I had a, because I teach acting uh, at the American Academy, um, and I've directed a lot of stuff as I'm on their main stage as well, but I, I'm head of the camera department there. And my big stress for them is, yes, you have a training, you have to learn all of these things and actions and objectives and story points and all, that's all true. But I say, what is the big picture here? What What is it all for? Well, I tell them, because they don't really know the answer, I tell them what it's all for is for you to feel so free that you, when that camera is rolling, you act on instinct and intuition mm -hmm. at the moment. You act on impulse and instinct because the story is now so ingrained in you and it's working on your brain subconsciously. And that's not esoteric or, you know, fanciful. That's the truth, the way our brains work, you know. So you're absorbing all of this and you don't even realize it. But the whole point is to set you free so you bring your own way, your own angle to the role, as long as it's appropriate for the story. Mm -hmm. Yep. And there's not one, never one answer to that. You can have two, what if you had 
what if Meryl Streep and Jennifer Aniston were the same age, hypothetically? Do you think they're going to bring the same result to the same role? Nope. No. Absolutely not. It would be miles, miles difference. Right. It's, it's, it's such an interesting point, too, because, like, so in this in this project, I, I wrote the original screenplay, and I've had some other people with me uh, that, that were the rewrites. I have a team with me now. And it's it's interesting as a director when, when I wrote or even as the screenwriter, when I wrote the parts, I, I they spoke a certain way. I had certain people in mind for the role. And, and it's been interesting to kind of step back as a director and, and, and give the actors the freedom to make the role their own. You know, there, there's some elements you want to make sure they capture. Right. But I actually, it was a little hard, honestly, you know, cause, cause I, I found myself, I, I had somebody that that's uh, an experienced actor say, Hey, you need to give them the freedom to, to be that, mm-hmm. be that part, to be that character, you know, cause I, cause I, I'd started kind of direct them like, Hey, read it like this or say it like this. And, and Ryan was like, Hey man, let, let them just give them some freedom to, to make the part their own. So it's been really interesting to step back as a director and let that happen as well. Yeah, actors don't usually appreciate line readings. Now, if you're working with somebody who's completely green and has never acted before and don't necessarily have any natural talent, you might have to tell them how to express the line. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole, not professional actors, no. That's uh, got to give them space. So, and then let's say they go on a track and as a director, my way of working is I've just steer them in a different direction or to get them in it to understand why we're going to go this way versus that way, even though both ways work and why for the story in the big picture of the story and how does the scene play into or how to, what is it function in the story at this time with your character? I don't tell them how to say it, how to play it because professional actors, that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to bring their entire selves to the project and their skill and their intellect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's so, definitely been a learning experience. And, and I'm actually really glad to, to hear that advice from you. And I'm definitely going to heed that just at, at, as a director in the future. Um, it, it was, it was, it was one of those, it's, you don't know till you learn situations, you know? Yeah. Do, so uh, let's, no, quick, <laughs> quick question. Are so, you working with professional actors or semi-professional or? Uh, let's see, Corey, Corey's a professional actor. Uh, Tess, Tess is new, but she wants to be a professional actor. Um, does she have talent? She is. She's very talented. Uh, and and what's, what's interesting is, is not only did she come in as an actress, but she's also really stepped into a producer role. She, nice. she just started doing all these things. I mean, and we, and we didn't ask her. She starts like, hey, I've got a connection here and I could get us ad space here. And I've, and she just started doing all these things. That's and great. Like, how do you feel about being a producer? You know, <laughs> so we, so she's a producer on the project as well. Yeah, those are um, the kind of people you want around you. It's been really great. It, it's it's very much a a grassroots indie production. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, some of the actors are my friends. Um, there, there's some people from the 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 local Knoxville film community. Um, but it's it's been really amazing how willing people have been to help. It's nice. Um, really good. Yeah, and I actually had a um uh I. A couple weeks ago, I had. Uh, do, do you know Mike Ankus? Does that name ring a bell to you at all? Not offhand, no. He was he was uh, one of the zombies in, in Day of the Dead, and I actually had him on the podcast. And and he oh. and I've become become friends. And he he actually um, donated uh, a bunch of camera equipment uh, 
to to my my production just outright donated it to us oh terrific uh, um and i i, I was so so mike mike if you hear this episode thank you so much <laughs> like it, it was it was it was such a blessing i i i he i knew he was shipping it to me um because we, we actually had lost our cinematographer and um so I was back to, to, to doing the project on my iPhone, which is fine. I was, I, I have lenses and things for my phone. I was just going to make it on my phone. And, and Mike, Mike knew that was going on. So he, so he shipped me this camera and things like that. So I got the package yesterday and I, uh, I texted him and let him know like, Hey, I got the package. So he called me and he and his wife were sitting there and, and he, he told me that they were gifting it to me, um, for, for the oh, project. Sweet. And they, sweet. Very nice. Yeah. So I, it was, that, that was, so I, I have been really overwhelmed by how willing, the film community has been to help people that are starting out. It's been really amazing. Yeah. It's really nice. It's really nice. Really is. It's, it's been, it's been fantastic. Let's, so let's, yeah. let's go back to, to 1978 for a minute. Cause I have to talk to you about Dawn of the Dead a little bit. <laughs> oh, that, movie. Um, yeah, that, was, that wasn't me. That was my brother. That's a joke that I have. <laughs> yeah, no, it was me. Yeah. So how, how did you, how did you get involved with that project? Uh, okay. Uh, I'll tell you. So, uh, George Romero and his then girlfriend, Christine Forrest, before they got married, cause they got married afterwards, uh, or maybe they were married before that. I don't remember. She came to New York. I'm an actor in New York, um, doing a lot of theater, uh, you know, just kind of crazy in a great way. But, uh, and she knew I was an actor because, we went to uh, Rollins College together. We didn't know each other until we met there. She was in the theater department. Um, and she always remembered me, and we'd stay in touch sometimes. And what, you know, And she came to New York, and she called me on the phone. I haven't heard from her for a long time. And she said, hi, Scotty. I said, hey, Chris. And she said, uh, do you know who George Romero is? I was not into horror movies, okay? And uh, that's not a negative comment. I just wasn't. That was not my interest. Um, and I said, well, yeah, he's the, he's the director who did Night of the Living Dead. I said, yeah, sure, I know who he is. Well, he's doing this new movie called Dawn of the Dead, and we want to know if you want to audition for it. I said, well, sure. And they sent me the script. They sent me the script. It was about 227 pages long. I couldn't believe it. Wow. It, it was the goriest thing I ever read. Uh you could not get the humor in it from reading it off the page. You you did you didn't get the humor of it until you were on the set shooting it. Um, and so <clears throat> I auditioned for George. He's, as you probably heard a million times about him, he's very welcoming. He is very down to earth. Uh, he is an incredibly considerate person, you know. And when he's shooting, he's incredibly organized, um, which allows him. To be generous, to be considerate. He gives you a lot of freedom. Anyway, so I auditioned for him, and I read this role of Roger, and I'm going, okay. And so I came up with this angle that he was uh, ex-military, ex-marine, to be specific. Um, and I researched a lot of that. And that he's a sharpshooter. Okay, I get that. You know, and then the internal thing, I figured out on my own. I said, this guy lives on the edge of danger, and that's what makes him feel alive. <laughs> the only problem with Roger is that Roger starts to make mistakes because he overestimates his ability to adapt to what's actually happening around him. 
Uh, that begins his downfall. But anyway, so I auditioned for George. He gave me two or three scenes. And he just looked at me, you know, and he smiled. Said, yeah, I really like it, you know. Uh, but there was something else in his voice about it. Yeah, come on back. I'll bring it back next week. We'll do it again. So I go back and I read, I think it's three scenes. Um, and uh, I don't remember who I was reading with, but he was sitting, I can picture him perfectly sitting on the couch. You know, George is very tall, or was very, very tall. Um, and I'm pretty short. And he, be, and he come, came up and gave me a hug. And afterwards, he said, you know, I, I really like what you're doing. And I said, George, it just came out of my mouth. I said, George, what's the butt? I hear a butt in your voice. He said, well, I already cast this guy who is twice your size. And if you do the role, you're going to be playing many of your scenes opposite him. And he meant Ken Forey. He's a stage Oh, name. wow. Okay. And he'd already cast him. And I said to him, I said, it just popped out of my mouth. I said, George, after the first five minutes, the audience is not going to give a shit about that. And he laughed. <laughs> so I saw him later that night at a restaurant. And he and Chris, and he came up to me, put his arm on my shoulder, said, okay, you got the part. Like, you talked me into it, you know. But I... I was really committed to do a great job with that, and um, I, you know, developed this whole backstory. And blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, um, and he was happy, and I was happy. But you don't get the humor until you get on the set. And you start to work with him. You go, and the satire. You go, oh, <laughs> I see what's going on here. You know, and all this the social satire and all the whole dynamics of the story about that and consumerism and. You know, I guess if there's nothing left to uh, consume anymore in the world, we might as well just eat each other. <laughs> you know, like, so that was a great experience. He and I, we became friends, like family friends. And his daughter um, and my daughter, their birthday was only like two weeks apart or something. And they became friends. And uh, I worked on Night Riders as well, but we always saw each other through the years, so we'd always get together, always. Yeah. Sad when he died. Yeah. Yeah. I never I never got to meet him. I was I was really bummed about that. Um and I I've I've, 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 I've heard nothing but just fantastic things about him. It, what an interesting story. So John, John Russo wrote a, a, a book about filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And um there's a story in that book uh where um he go he comes to he he goes over to George's house and George comes out dressed in like a, a a hat with like pistols and you know and he was kind of this like you know uh bandolero kind of character you know mm -hmm. and just like that they said he was just like that he was just kind of a larger than life character he was just, yeah just all the time um now when you, <laughs> yeah yeah that's you could de and you could definitely see that when you when you when you watch him you could definitely tell he had a really deep sense of humor and, and the fact that he could actually bring humor into something like a, like a zombie apocalypse is really telling as well about mm -hmm. the sense of humor that he had yeah. when, when you, when you did Dawn of the dead, was that your first time in uh, Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh? Uh, I think so. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now no, shopping malls were new back then. Like what, did, like did they have those in, in New York and Connecticut? Not that I recall. Uh, my understanding at that time, and I might be wrong, it was one of the first shopping malls in America. Uh, wow. And you know what was uncanny? While we're shooting the movie, 
there's a Newsweek, Newsweek, you know, the magazine, Newsweek? Mm-hmm. Uh, the cover comes out, and the title is The Mauling of America. It has a double meaning about what malls are going to be doing to America, and they're going to end up all over, and what it's going to do to our culture. This is right while we're making the movie. I went, oh, isn't that fascinating? It's kind of prophetic, you know? Yeah, that's true. And, and it's, you know, it's interesting to think that the, the scene in the movie when you, when everyone first arrives at the mall, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it really was a new thing to y'all. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's like, you're, it's like, what, you know, what is this? One of those big indoor shopping malls, you know, it, it's that, that was in a way sort of a genuine reaction because it was such a, a new thing. That's really fascinating. I, I, I didn't know that. That's, that's yeah. really, really interesting. So I, let's, let's talk about the character of Roger for a couple minutes. You, you sure. talked about the, you know, the, the backstory being ex-military and, and he was kind of just wild and, and, and took chances. Like, and you really, you really did an amazing job expressing that in that part. Okay. How, how, how how did you there's a real bond between you and Ken, you know, between the Peter and Roger character. How mm-hmm. did you guys cultivate that that brotherhood? Because I mean, like when 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 Roger dies, I mean, like you're I, I actually my, my best one of my best friends, Carol Sue, I, she and I watched it on the dead recently. She hadn't seen it before. Mm. And she when 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 your character passed was killed, she it really it it hurt. And you, mm. you did such like you 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 had such a lovable character and there was such a strong bond between you and Ken in that role. How did you guys cultivate that? Well, uh, we did that. It wasn't intentional. It just happened. Uh, I didn't know him before the shoot. We, uh, the cast was all staying at the same hotel in downtown Pittsburgh. The mall is about a half an hour away in Monroeville. Um, and I had my car. So he would ride with me to the set every day. Uh, you know, he's a big guy, you know, um, and he's a big black guy. And he, you know, he talked to me and looked at me like I'm this short little white guy. And he kind of makes fun of me and I'd make fun of him right back. I had a feeling he didn't like, who is this guy? You know, I wasn't intimidated by him in the least, you know, and, um, and we joke around. We just got to know each other just through talking, you know, and it was almost every day. Almost every day, and I don't mind saying this because here I've already said this at conventions, he was almost always late. I'm waiting in the parking garage. It's freezing cold because it's the winter, and he just strolls up like always late. So I'd make fun about him about being late, and he didn't like it. And I said, well, what, what are you going to do about it? I'm sitting here in the car. What are you going to do? And then he kind of got used to me, and I got used to him. And our friendship just kind of developed over time. But it was from spending time together outside of the set. And I think that's how that happened. And then I grew really fond of him. Yeah. And so just even so the real the real banter between you as well. So there really was that kind of real Roger Peter relationship that developed between you two, it sounds like just even yeah. offset. Would y'all is your now are 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 either of you method actors like would you stay in character? Uh outside of set or would you just go back to being who you were and it's just kind of that real friendship that blossomed well i would somebody if i could do a really uh, intense scene i would just take a little quiet time with myself uh but you know when once we were done shooting i'd let it go you know i was i was always prepared i knew what i was going to do every single day uh 
And um, but sometimes it's intense. I, you know, the the scene in the cage in the beginning where they're eating each other, that was downright disturbing. I mean, emotionally, because <laughs> it was so real. <laughs> you know, it was so real. And George, we're up in in the in the tenement building. You know, you know where that is in the beginning of the movie. Um, <laughs> And we were upstairs in like, I guess, a green room thing. And they asked us to come down ready for the shoot. So we hadn't seen the set yet until we walked down there. I walked down there and I went, oh, my God. And I said to George, (laughs) I'll never forget this. I said, George, this is just disgusting. And he looked at me and he smiled with, yeah, I know. So you had no idea you're walking into that scene. Like you didn't, you didn't know what to expect walking into that. We knew what scene we were doing, but we had no idea of how kind of disturbing it was. Well, when you guys started shooting the zombies, the the squibs, like did did you know that the, what Tom was going to do in that scene as well with the, you know, the head explosions and stuff like that? Oh yeah. Surprise. Oh yeah. 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 What if, one of the things I've always been really curious about, and, and I'm really glad you brought up that particular uh, shot location, um, that building, was it actually uh, occupied? Like, were I those real? So. I, I may be wrong about that, but as I recall, I, I do not think so at all. Okay, so it was, it, so it was, it was abandoned more than likely? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, after after your character was killed, did did you did you go home or did you stay the the remainder no, of the I production? Stayed. You did stay. I stayed until uh, the end. Well, no, what, I, wanted, did, I wanted to watch it. Did you do? Did you just kind of, did you do like more like production type stuff while, while you were there when you weren't no. acting? Uh huh. I would just watch uh, the shooting and I'd watch the actors and watch the George. Okay. Yeah. Now. Another another kind of controversial, uh, well, I won't say controversial is not the right word, but there mm-hmm. it, it, there's some speculation about it. The original ending to the movie, mm-hmm. I, I have heard Tom Savini say that they they shot it, and I've heard Tom Savini say that they didn't. And mm-hmm. I recently heard in an interview he said that they filmed the they filmed Galen's body falling from the propeller. Do Do you remember what what they actually shot of the original ending, if anything? You know, that's the one thing I did not see. Okay. Funny you brought that. I didn't see it. I knew what it was in the script. Uh, Galen at a recent convention. Where the hell were we? Uh, we were in Dallas, Texas, like a few months ago. Um, she said they shot it, uh, and then they shot another version of it. Uh, so she was very sure they shot it. But so I, I've heard of this controversy. Did they shoot it? Did they not shoot it? Uh, and that's an ongoing kind of mystery. But she's, she said, yeah, we shot it. We George didn't use the disturbing ending, but he shot it. Yep. Do you think they should have, do you think the, the, the sadder ending would have been the way to go? Or do you like the more bright ending? That's a good question. Um, uh, since I didn't see the ending the way he shot it, but I knew that it would be incredibly dark and very, very disturbing. Um, I thought the brighter ending was, you know, it was not an unusual thing. A lot of movies do that. And 
you know, they win in the end or they escape or, you know, that's very typical story structure. Um, I, I did think um, the ending with the score and all of that, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was okay. I, I wasn't like, you know, wowed by it. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question, actually, but. No, it's okay. So it kind of sounds like you think that the, the darker ending probably would have been the better way to go with it. It probably would have the most impact. But for the longevity of the movie, maybe not. It may have killed the longevity of the movie because what we could not expect that this movie would become so popular mm-hmm. for so long. And it still is to this day, and it keeps going on. It's like a zombie, and you can't kill it. You know, there's the conventions, and it's like, I mean, it's mind-boggling. I mean it, because I don't get jaded. I, I still, I go to a convention, and these people show up, you know, from other generations that weren't even alive when the movie came out, and the way they talk about it. And it's like, it's like awesome. And it's like, I think, what does he do? Because people, you know what I ask people? I say, along with the gore and the zombies and the humor, what what is the main hook for you about the film? And nine times out of ten, they say it's the relationships between the lead characters. That's usually it. That's their usual answer. And I think that's the hook of the movie, because without that, I don't think it would have been as interesting. I agree. I yeah. agree. It, I, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't even know how to answer that question. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people. I, I Dawn of the Dead changed my life. Um, wow. I, I'm, I'm partially pursuing becoming a filmmaker because of that movie, because of George Romero, because of what you guys wow. did. Wow. Um, I, I, I saw Night of the Living Dead as a child, you know, for better or worse. <laughs> I saw Night, and and I was hooked on horror films from that moment on. And when I was in seventh grade, and this would have been like 1997, um, I came home from school one day, and 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 I I wasn't as I wasn't obsessed with George Romero at that point. I I didn't know that he had done other films. Um, uh, I came I came home from school, and on MTV, I guess it was around Halloween time, they were playing this. Um, I'm so excited to get to tell you the story. Oh, cool. Iger, I, re- I really am. Um, they they were, they were Scott, pl- please. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, they, they were, they were playing this, this show that was, uh, like different scenes from different horror films. And I remember seeing this Vista of a mall parking lot and all these zombies and it was Dawn of the dead. So I'm 12 years old. This is prior to the internet being a big thing. YouTube didn't exist. You know, I, I didn't know how to see this movie at 12 years old, but I had to see it. So I went on this journey to, to try and see this film. And I remember getting the the original. It was actually a first edition copy of the book. I got it from the library, and I'd read part of it. Um, this one Halloween rolls around, and think, oh, there you go. Um, oh, did I lose you? Okay, there we go. Yeah, you're okay now. Gotcha. Um, this like ha- Halloween rolls around, and I'm at my grandmother's house, and I remember uh, on the the TV guide they had um, Dish Network. I believe it was Dish Network they had back then. 
um, at 10 o'clock, Dawn of the Dead was coming on. And I was so excited. I was finally going to get to see this movie. I couldn't believe it. I don't remember what was playing before. I I didn't care. It was like whatever it was needed to go off. So I could finally see Dawn of the Dead. It's 10 o'clock. If my memory serves me correctly, I see the red carpeted wall. I hear that creepy goblin music playing. And then my grandmother comes to the room and tells me it's time for bed. Yeah. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh. Um, And it was probably it probably took me about another half a year to a year to finally get to see it. And I believe I rented it from Blockbuster on VHS and I watched it. And I had no idea going into it that in the first 20 minutes I was going to see somebody's head explode. And and it scared me, you know, seeing Tasso get ripped open at the end. But it changed my life. I, yeah, I, I just it did. It, it changed my life. I, I've been obsessed with that movie ever since then. It's nothing has ever replaced that movie. And I was and I, I'm third. I'm 36 years old. And since I was 13 years old, nothing has ever replaced that movie as my favorite film of all time. I, I, in my mind, it changed cinema. It changed what you mm-hmm. can do in cinema. Um, mm-hmm. I just think it changed the course of things. It was well acted. The special effects were amazing. And I fell in love with George Miro at that point. Mm. And when, when, when you had agreed to come on the show, I actually called my grandmother and, and, and I, I'm sorry. Oh, you did. I'm just, I'm just coming. Oh, I, I did. Um, I, I called her and I, and I said, you know, nanny, um, you probably don't remember this, but years and years ago. And I told her the story. And, um, and I said, I'm, I'm actually one of the stars of that movies coming on my podcast. And she, she was really thrilled for me. Um, you know, and actually Dawn journey productions, uh, the, that story is actually what inspired my company name because it was such a journey to get to see Dawn of the dead, but, oh, but yeah. because of George Miro, because of you, because of Galen and David and Ken and Tom Savini and, and everybody like I, I, I owe all of y'all so much because I, I'm pursuing film today because of the inspiration you all were to me in that film. Well, that's beautiful. You know, you can fully blame Romero for that. <laughs> um, so it's that's why I was so nervous because that that movie has has had such an impact on my life and it meant so much to me. That's why I was so nervous about getting to talk to you because it's literally been this full circle thing for me. Like if you looked at my Facebook right now, I've been talking to you like, oh, I'm so nervous. I'm going to interview Scott Reiniger. And, oh, really? You know, well, yeah, I, I was I was so nervous. I mean, because you're you're one of my heroes. And it's it's just such an honor to talk to you. It really is. It's a dream come true. I wish I could go back in time to my 13 year old self and tell and tell him that he's going to get to do this one day. It's a dream come true. Wow, wow, wow! Thank thank you for that. You know, horror fans are the best. You know why? <laughs> because they're really into it. They're not. I, I find it very rare that at a convention. Anybody has an attitude or or anything. They're just so into the genre and to the movie and their enthusiasm about it. It's just uh, kind of amazing to me. You know, um, that's why I, I enjoy it so much. Also, I like people, so I'm always fascinated you know, by people. So, um, you know, I can only my, imagine. My, you know, my manager said to me once. It was a few years ago. His name is Chris Rowe. He manages a lot of pretty well-known people. Uh, he said, Scotty, you know you are in the most iconic horror film of all time, direct, don't you? And I went, well, yeah, I guess so. I'm not quite sure I thought of it in exactly those terms. He said, oh, yeah, you are. He said, I don't think you realize it. I said, well, maybe I don't. <laughs> you know, um, 
It's like, how, how could you know? Like when, when you're when you're making that film back then, yeah. how could you know that it would have the impact it was going to have? And then, you know, 40 plus years later, it's it's still just as powerful today as it was then. You know, it's, I, I can't even imagine. But that's got to be such a, a neat feeling, too. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, it's uh, um, it's very unusual. Um, I don't know if I fully understand it. I'm I'm saying that honestly, um, because the fans are so enthusiastic about it, and it's like forty years later, and many of those people were not even alive then. <laughs> What happened? <laughs> what did Romero do? You know, when I saw Night of the Living Dead, uh, what was that? When did that come out? 1968. When I first saw that, I remember coming out of the movie theater, I went, wait a minute. Did this really happen? Because it looked like a documentary to me. And it was all black and white and, and all of that. I just remember thinking that, like, oh, God, this was so weird. You know, little did I know many, many years later I'd be in one of his movies. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just that, that total full circle thing. That's yeah. that's that's interesting that, that you mentioned even the documentary thing. I, I went through a flood in 2010, and um, I talked about this on one of my previous episodes. The, uh, the, the, the next day, my mom and I went back to um, – the, the property and we were on this boat going out towards the house. And, um, I remember this helicopter was flying around and there was a, a cameraman hanging out of the helicopter. And I kept thinking to myself, and I, and I remember this clear as day today, all these years later, it, it reminded me of night of the living dead at the end when the helicopters are flying oh, yeah. around and coming in. That's absolutely what it reminded me of. I kept thinking that over and over and over and over again. This was 2010. And I just kept thinking that it's like, man, this is like night of the living dead. It's like night of the living dead. Wow. Um, so it's interesting. It had that impact on you. Cause that, that's, that, that, that's, I, I would say it actually had a similar impact on me as well. Mm. And, and it awakened my love for horror. It's, and you know, it's, it's really hard to, I'm not sure anybody could could pinpoint what exactly it is about the film that made it so iconic, that made it so special to people. You know, I, I think there are a number of things. I mean, I think for one, the, the time, you know, the 1970s and the 1980s were such an amazing time for for film, especially hard. There's something, in my opinion, there's something magical about those two decades that you just can't recapture. You could do right. remake remakes all day long, but it's not 1978 anymore. It's not 1985 anymore. There's just something that's not present any longer that I think was present in those two times. So I think it was the decade. I think it was the the pushing the envelope, you know, that Tom with the special effects. Um, I think it was really a testament to what an independent filmmaker can do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're just – I don't know if anybody can pinpoint a single thing because I, I think had Dawn of the Dead been made today um, – and this is not a knock to it by any stretch – but mm. but I think had it been made today with the same special effects with the same budget, it, it just it wouldn't work. <coughs> no, <coughs> no, because also the audience expectation is very different. Um, yeah, it was fresh for its time, um, and a lot of those filmmakers then uh, there was a rawness to a lot of their films, just not just our movies, but look at the French Connection. You remember that movie? Mm-hmm. 
you ever see it? I haven't seen it, but I don't know when you're talking about. Oh, my God. You know, it's about the two uh, New York detectives in the middle of the winter um, and who are tracking this uh, heroin dealer from France who arrives on a ship and his big Lincoln Continental is stuffed with heroin and they're trying to track him down. It is so raw, it's so good, you feel like you're standing on the street in New York in the middle of the winter. It just has that raw, real feeling. And it's a very exciting movie, you know, but there are a lot of movies like that. There was, uh, did you ever see, uh, I mean, that time period, um, Mate One, did you ever hear a movie like that by, by, um, Mm, not Terrence Malick. John Sale. Have you ever heard of that filmmaker? You may I'm not. not I'm, I'm not familiar with him. Well, it's a film that uh, was in the late 60s, came out. Uh, it was about a coal mining town and you, unionizing this town of coal miners, you know, and the conflict and so-called war that took, around, took place around. That's a true story. But the way it was filmed, I'll never forget it, ever. You felt like you were inside the coal mine. And that is because, of, not just the director, but that's because of uh, Haskell Wexler, who is an amazing cinematographer. He's much older now. But he, any movie he did, I'd watch. I saw him in interviews. I went to a, a live thing that he was uh, as a guest in L.A. And, or was that in New York? I don't remember. Uh, but he said something that just hit me. He said, I always look at how I'm going to light something and I look at what lights I can get rid of and that I don't need. Anyway, he said, that's how I approach everything. I look at what is unnecessary and then I don't use it and I pare it down. So the reality of the uh, being inside the mines was like as the audience, like you're in the mine. You don't feel like you're watching a movie. It was like, but he, he always is like that. Everything he does always. I'm definitely going to have to make a point to, to it's, it's interesting when I talk to people, inevitably a film will come out that I haven't seen. And I'm like, Oh, I wish I'd seen this. So I'm definitely going to check those two out for sure. Yeah. John sales. Yeah. He's like a, a top indie filmmaker. He's much older now, but he's a, he was known as almost like the indie guy, you know, and he wrote a book. Um, <laughs> you know how he would storyboard uh, his films, the scenes, he would do them in stick figures. Literally. Oh, like really? Yeah, he would write, he had, there are examples in his book. I read his book like three or four times. Uh, and um, he was an interesting guy. There's another director at that time, too. He was that whole time period, Terrence Malick, uh, who directed Days of Heaven. And interestingly enough, which I didn't realize at first, was that Haskell Wexler was one of the cinematographers on the movie. I will never forget the opening of that movie, ever. It was like so. It was so beautiful. It was this image of these wheat fields, and the wind is blowing, 
And that's what fills the bottom half of the screen. And then you see this Amish horse-drawn cart in the background on a hill. And it's so... It's so isolating, and it takes you right into the world immediately. And he has a way of doing that. I can't, I can't even explain this. Just, but I love cinematographers like that. It's like, wow, that, you know, that's not what a lot of flash. That's like really artistry. Mm-hmm. So simple, but it's not. What's your, what's your favorite movie? My what? What's your favorite movie? My favorite movie? Ooh. Um, well, Mate One is one of my favorites. Uh, in a more contemporary sense, I would say Dead Man Walking. Because what I loved about that movie, it's a true story, uh, is that it didn't take sides. It didn't tell you to think this way or to think that way. It just jogged your brain and made you think of capital punishment, the value or the lack of value, and should it be in our society? It doesn't answer the question. And it's very disturbing. So I thought that as a as a story and as a film that was a really well made film and it was done pretty simply. And if you look how it shot, it, it shot so simple, not simple to shoot or simple to light, but you know there's nothing fancy about it whatsoever. Boy, is it powerful. One of the things that I'm really struck by talking to you, especially as you're as you're talking about films that you love you can tell that you have such a deep seated passion and love and appreciation for film. It's, it's, right. it's, it's really inspiring. Oh, thank you. I, I do. I mean, sometimes I see a really good film and it makes me cry. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, you can tell, I mean, you just, like, like just watching your body language, you just kind of sit back and, and, and you think, you know, and, and it's, it's a well thought of answer. It's just, that's just so inspiring. It's, it's oh, so cool. inspiring. Well, I'm just can, me. I just can't help that. Do, uh, how are we looking on time? Do, do, you, do you have a few more minutes? Uh, yeah. What time is it? Uh, yeah, a few more. Maybe like a few 15. more. Well, let's let's uh let, let's 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 close it on this. Um, you're you really enjoy writing. Um, and it's, one of the things I wanted to give you a chance to talk about is 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 writing. What um. What is so when when you when you have, let's let's start with where do you tend to find your inspiration for writing. Um, it usually comes around, you know, obviously, uh, something I have a passion about. Um, and so I don't go about writing, well, I'm going to write a screenplay that's going to be successful and make a lot of money. I sure money's great. I love, I like money, you know, kidding. But it always comes from something that I've been thinking about or a story that I think needs to be told. Because I have, whether I'm right or wrong about that, but I have a passion for it. And then it, it drives me to then start to write it. The movie that I am working on now with a screenplay, we're, we're done with it. Uh, and 
writing it with my brother, and it's all completed. It's gone through, I don't know, over 100 drafts. I, I lost count. Uh, that was the result of 20 years of research. Wow. Very, we didn't do work on it every day for 20 years, but an over 20 year period. It's a very, very provocative. Uh, and it's a story that nobody knows anything about. Um, and my brother is a documentary filmmaker. Uh, for PBS and WGBH, and he's working on the American Experience and Nova, and uh, he came across this PhD document, you know, because he's also a big researcher. <laughs> I, I can't tell you the story, I'd love to, but I can't. Um, he sent this document to me, and he said, do you think this might make an interesting film? I read it. I said, are you shitting me? You bet your ass we're making an amazing movie, you know, just as a basis. Um, so we went to work on it. You know, we weren't being paid. Or we just had to do it for some reason. <laughs> and now it's done. And I'm really happy with the shape that it's in. When you're when you're in a project like that, I'm, and I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up. So when you're when you're in a project and you're writing, what is it? What does a day look like for you? What does a day look like? Yeah, when, when you're when you're writing, when you're knee deep in a project, what does a typical day look like? Uh, when I'm writing, the day goes by very fast. <laughs> That's what happens. Uh, unless I get stuck, and sometimes it gets stuck, so then I have to get up away from the computer and I go outside. You know, I I, I train myself to know if you're getting stuck or you're getting frustrated, just walk away from it. Don't try to push it and make it work. Because it won't be organic, or you'll 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 lose something. So I just like remove myself literally from my computer, and I walk outside, you know, smoke a cigarette or whatever. Um, and then it comes back to me. I always have to trust my my intuition and my instincts, you know, um, and not question. It took me a long time to learn that, but I learned that from being in the theater as a director. Uh, and it's not because I'm so brilliant or anything like that. It's just the way I work. And I I learned as a director and then prior to that as an actor, but particularly as a director, that whenever I had an instinct or an intuition or something would fly through my mind about the play, I would try it out in rehearsal. Because you always, everybody has an inner critic, right? Everybody. You know, a little voice, oh, I don't do that. You know, it's not going to work. You know, what is it like that? You know, it's a little voice that talks, right? Well, I was trained as a professional life coach as well. That's all another story. But I learned how to manage that voice and how to get it. It never stops. I mean, in life, it always comes back. But it's how you catch it at the moment and you manage it. And then you don't pay any fucking attention to it. You know what I mean? Or you tell it to go away or turn on some music. So, but what I did is I trained myself that whenever that happens, it still happens, like, oh, I'm not sure you should do that. My next answer is do it. And you know, 99% of the time, it always works. Always. You know, human beings are fascinating. The way their brain works is pretty fascinating. Absolutely. You know, I rather agree. than I got to do it because I want to please the audience. It's like, what are you going to write about? You're going to play. What the fuck does that mean? You know, all you can do is write what you you know and you feel. You know, um, 
I mean, to me. Otherwise, I can't write about it. It's funny, though, because when you get into the middle of a project and you start, after you research it, you know the story so well and you construct a story, which is that takes a lot of work, you know. Um, and scene by scene, and you know the characters. The characters, they start speaking for themselves. The dialogue just shows up. It's like weird, but it's not weird. But you know how they sound. You know what their intentions are, what their objectives are. And the dialogue just kind of shows up as you're typing. And then if you, you catch something like, uh, no, uh, that doesn't gel. You know, and then you'll rewrite it. Uh, uh, no, it doesn't gel. And then you go, ah, yeah, that's it. That shows. Because it makes sense. You know, it's, like, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's kind of crazy. It can be excruciating sometimes, but I sure love it. <laughs> On those on your right, like, do you tend to write like like nine to five? Do you, do you set a certain time, or you just write until you feel like you don't want to write anymore? Uh, I tend to. Uh, I don't write all the time because I'm doing other stuff, but uh, I tend to get up in the morning pretty early, have coffee, have some peace time in the morning. I like the morning a lot, where it's quiet, and and then uh, I open it up. I I, I can always. I just can't wait always to get back to it. I might be in the middle of a scene, you know, and I may, I may be dreaming about it the night before. And I wake up and I can't wait to get back to it. Or I have a problem and I can't solve it, so I can't wait to kind of address the problem. Because I always think that it can be solved, everything can be solved, you just don't see it yet. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a crazy career. I think... <laughs> I think you and I think about screenwriting in a similar fashion because when, when, you know, and, and the movie I'm working on now is actually my first screenplay that I've ever written, but mm. I literally at times felt like I was putting together a puzzle or there's an issue I need to solve. Well, if I, if I go this route, there's a plot hole. How do I explain this? You know, when, it, when somebody asked me the question, like, well, how do you explain this part of their story? Or how do you explain that part of the story? Well, if they were doing this, then why didn't they do this? You start to suddenly, there's so much more to writing a story a oh good story that then yep. you realize because you can start to poke holes in it and you have to try to anticipate all the questions that people are going to ask, you know, mm -hmm. well, how do I explain this? How to explain that? And it really does become problem solving. It's so cool yeah. to hear you say that. That's exactly how I think about it. <laughs> well, I look at it like, how does it link up? Does it link up now? Is that important? Or does it link up later in the story and when we find out oh what that scene that we originally saw oh why it's there and then you realize it everything is linked to everything else whether it's obvious or whether it's subtle everything is linked that's how i think about it so i think of the scene i always think literally i think in my mind how does this link up does this link up and then i'll like scour the script to make sure it links up then i'll go back to where i am it's like <laughs> Oh, I don't know. It's very, it's very time consuming, but I like it. <laughs> it, very, yeah, this, it really is. What, what are, what are, listen, what, what are three books you think every actor, screenwriter, uh, director, what, what are three books everyone should read that's, that's in this industry? For film? Mm -hmm. or, or, or even theater. What, like what you, you can kind of mix it up if you want. Um, Well, 
I, I think for acting, <clears throat> um, there's a book that I read um, that I studied called Respect for Acting called by Uta Hagen. She's one of the most famous acting teachers uh, in, in the history of the U.S. Uh, respect for acting. Um, uh, and uh, there's this other book. It's written by a Russian. What is the title? It's a little book. It might be called The Creature. I haven't read it in years, but I remember it had a big impact on me, uh, the way this guy wrote it. Um, uh, for directing for theater, <clears throat> uh, the <laughs> this is this next thing is a book I used to carry with me all the time. Uh, it was called the Prevent the Profession of the Stage Director by Georgi Tostanagov. Um, I don't think he's alive still, but um, he's a Russian director at the Gorky Theater. Um, in what is now called St. Petersburg, but at that time it was called Leningrad. Uh, and that book had a huge impact on me. <laughs> Why are you do directing? What's the purpose? You know, it's like, uh, I, 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 and I have a copy of it still, you know. Uh, so for theater, uh, for film, I can only say things that like had a big impact on me it was John Sayles' book, S-A-Y-L-E-S. Um, I can't remember the exact title. Uh, directing film, the film director. Um, he has a lot of good information in there. Um, and I love that. Um, what else? I have to visualize these in my head, so. Um, this other acting book I was talking about, written by, I think it was this Russian, I think the title was called The Creature. The Creature being a very young actor that he's training. It's the way he tells the story. Uh, I think that's the name of it. I don't know. I'm 73 now. Maybe I'm having memory issues. Um, uh, there's another book. Hmm. I mean, there's so many books on the film profession becoming... Mm -hmm. A film actor becoming a film director like there are a bazillion books uh and everybody has an idea of what that is which is great um what's well, okay we've, we've got some good ones if you can think of, if you happen to think of any more and you want to email them to me i'll throw them in the show notes yeah okay once, once i get it posted um and and i think i think that's a good a good place to end it scott okay I, I really, um, I really, really appreciate you coming on. I really do. Well, I really have enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut recording. Okay, cool. Hey, everybody. Brian here. 
Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I had an absolute blast making it, and I'm so glad each of you could join me. I do want to take a quick moment to remind each and every one of you that you're awesome, that you're loved, and that you matter. And I'm so glad each and every one of you are here. So until next time, stay tuned, stay curious, and as George Romero used to always say, stay scared.